Please pray with me. Lord God, thank you for the gift and blessing of this day, for your holy and life-giving presence here with us, Lord, that in the midst of challenge and strife, Lord, you are powerfully present. Lord God, in the midst of our fears and anxieties, in the midst of turmoil and confusion, you are present. In the midst of joy and hope and love, Lord, you are there as well. And we turn to you now, Lord, wherever we are, and we offer up our prayers, our fears, our joys to you, Lord. And we pray that you would take hold of our lives, Lord, and guide us and lead us in your paths of righteousness. Lord, hold us by the hand and walk by our side. Protect us, Lord, and encourage us and strengthen us as we seek to serve you. Lord God, be with us in particular during this time of worship of you this morning. Give me your words, Lord, words of encouragement, words of challenge, words of blessing. Lord, and may you use those words to transform our lives that they might be invested profoundly for you. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Please be seated. Morning. It is so splendid to see you all this morning. Now, one of the challenges we face in life is, I guess I would call it quantifying. Quantifying, like how much is something, or how much is enough, or how much is too much, or how much is whatever. Um, quantifying is difficult, right? Which is more and which is left. For instance, I have with me some items in my pulpit. I have a swing line stapler, a Boston pencil sharpener, a something or other scotch tape dispenser, some scissors and a little letter opener thing, and a calculator. There we go. Is this too many things? Is it? Is it too many things? Is that lots of things up here? Do I have a lot of things up here? Now, if this pulpit were the size of a football field, would I have a lot of things up here? Well, what do you, there's the same amount of things. Not much space. Oh, so you're saying the space I have makes a difference for how many things there are. Is that strange to anyone? No, it's context. It's context. So context makes all the difference, I guess, in our world, right? Context. Because if I had a lot more room up here, it wouldn't matter if I had even more things. Because there would be plenty of space for them all. But right now, with these five things, I've already knocked one off of the pulpit. Because it's too much. Too much for this space. Too much for this context. Now, I find that to be confusing. I mean, does quantifying confuse any of you ever? Do I have too much? Do I have too little? Does anyone ever look at how many people, how much people put on the um, belt at the grocery store? The conveyor belt there? And think, compare, like, well, do I have more or less? What things do they have? What things do they not have? I have a friend who's really sensitive about grocery store judgment. When someone says like, oh, wow, strawberries, huh? And he's like, what do you mean? What's wrong with my strawberries? You know, or like, you know, whatever it happens to be, right? He's really sensitive about other people commenting on the food he puts on the belt, right? Or the items he puts on the belt. 
right? We have this world and this life in which we're constantly challenged to compare things to one another, right? Is my phone modern enough? Is my car acceptable for my station in life? Is my outfit I'm wearing appropriate? Right? We're always comparing ourselves to others. Is my house look like it's maintained? Does my, is my lawn mowed? Is my, right? We do these things because on some level we're comparing ourselves to other, right? others, aren't we? Judging, right? Now, if I remove, say, these two things and put them somewhere else, do I have fewer things now? Yeah, absolutely. And, but what have I gained? Space. That's an interesting thing, right? I've given up two things, but I've gained something as well. Now, what's more valuable? Space or the items? If I'm doing secretarial work, I need those things, right? So giving that up would really harm me. But if I'm preaching, is it helpful to be moving a few things out of here? Yes, it sure is, right? So I don't catch my cuff on them again. I'll actually move something else because that would be even more helpful. So I don't knock it over later in my sermon and distract you from a really important point. Right? I've gained something by giving up something. And that is a hard thing to quantify, isn't it? I mean, we're near the end of the trade deadline, or we just finished the end of the trade deadline for the the National Football League, right? And people are always doing this calculus, giving up something to gain something. Or some teams just give up everything every year, which seems to be kind of the Raiders' plight. But the challenge is, how do we quantify? How do we know? We do this calculus all the time, every day of our lives. Buying and selling and giving away and clearing out. Now, in our gospel passage for today, we have two accounts going on here uh, that seem to be linked. The first is the warning about the scribes, right? And the scribes, they were the religious teachers and lawyers of their time. They knew their scripture. They knew how to argue it. And Jesus is speaking. And the comments we have here come in the midst of a larger discussion that we have only a fragment uh, recorded for us. How do we know it comes out of a larger discussion? Well, Mark tells us. He says, as Jesus taught, he said. Which implies that there's a lot more teaching going on than what we have recorded right here. As Jesus taught, he said. And from this that we have, he tells us, beware of the scribes. This language he uses several times, right? Beware of the, the yeast of the Pharisees or beware of Herod. Here we have beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. Oh man, anyone who walks around in a long robe, watch out for them. And to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. Nobody likes that, do they? And to have the best seats in the synagogue and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses, and for the sake of appearance, say long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Now, I kid you not, I thought about this verse seriously last Friday, because I was at the synagogue for a service, and I had been sitting near the back and had given up my seat because there were a lot of people coming in, and I saw I was in the narthex uh, with the McKinney's, and 
And then somebody brought me to the front of the synagogue and I thought, I don't want to be like those people in this verse. Right? I don't want to be like that. It freaked me out. I was racking my brain trying to figure out if I was one of them or not. Scary. Now the scribes, though, they were abusing their power. They were using it to try to take more than they had. They liked to dress up in the most expensive clothes, to be treated with special respect, and to have the best seats in the synagogue and at banquets. Now this is human nature to some degree, isn't it? Right? I mean, who, when you go to a restaurant, says to the the host there, or the hostess, please give me the worst seat? I mean, how many of you do that? How many of you, when you go to your look for a house, tell you or an apartment, tell the real estate agent, please, I'd like the worst house. Give me one that backs right up to the interstate, has poor drainage issues, and maybe the sewer always backs up into the yard, right? Is, do any of us do that? No. We're always looking for just a little more, right? Okay, I've got this amount of money. How can I get the best value for my dollar, right? Which really says, how can I get the best for what I have? Right? Very seldom do we say, oh, I'd like to settle for mediocre. And that's this impulse that's driving these Pharisees in their lives, is trying to always get the best, the most for what they can. Now, the second part of this statement that I just read really brings up a challenge, a second challenge, which is even larger than the first. They devour widows' houses and for the sake of appearance say long prayers. These, these scribes, these religious scholars and lawyers, they take material advantage of widows, those who are fragile or needy or lonely or without a defender, someone to speak on their behalf. Like Ruth, from our earlier reading, the scribes were taking advantage of women like Ruth. They took advantage of the ones they were supposed to care for, the ones they were supposed to defend, the ones they were supposed to speak on behalf of. Now, how they did this, we're not entirely sure. Now, according to the commentary I was reading, it could have been through excessive legal fees. Good thing lawyers don't do that anymore. Uh, through mismanaging uh, to their own advantage an estate which they had been made uh, trustee of. Maybe they kind of like, you know, funnel money out of it a little bit. Or through taking widows' houses as a pledge for unpayable debts. Or through promoting the temple cult, which, which required people to give and give and give to it, and eating up the resources of the poor. Or just more generally through exploiting their hospitality and trust. Right. We see this story all the time today, right? Okay. It's also, uh, they also pray really long, which is irritating because it's done just for appearance or it could also be a way to extract money from people. Their long prayers could be something that they get compensated for. Right. Uh, a pay for pray scheme or something like that. Now, it's really interesting because that first challenge, which was about their appearance and their actions, and the second, which was about devouring widows' houses, are those two things dissociated from one another or are they connected? It seems as though they are connected, right? The first, their desire for prestige and 
power and status requires that they clamor over other people to get to it, right? They have to climb to get to that level where they've got those things. And so it seems to be that they've achieved achieved their fame uh, on the backs of widows, on the backs of the poor. Those who they have defrauded, uh, the poor who support their lavish lifestyle, living opulently on items or a lifestyle built on the backs of the poor. This is a challenge to us today too, right? In our culture? To live above the level which we could because we do it on the backs of others? The gospel narrative then moves us to the description of the widow's might which seems to be intimately connected, right? You've got widows in the first that are getting devoured, or their house is devoured by the scribes. And here we have widows in the second. Now, in the court of the women, there were a bunch of chests. They were called trumpet chests, um, possibly because of their shape, uh, probably not because, like, Louis Armstrong was there. Uh, And they were used for putting in the temple tax. You You would toss it into the trumpet chest. And the temple tax was a half shekel per man. And also there were other ones, another six or eight chests there that were there for free will offerings, which could be given whenever. If a person wanted to give something to God, those free will chests were there too. Now Jesus and his disciples are sitting around and watching people put stuff into those. I guess this was a popular pastime. Right? It's kind of an interesting thing to sit and watch people putting their stuff in. Uh, And it's not private in any way. It seems like this was a very public thing to do. So Jesus and his disciples are watching, and many people are putting money into the treasury. Lots of rich people are putting in large amounts of money, which would have probably been interesting. right? Kind of like listening to a slot machine cash out or something, right? It's like pouring the stuff into it. Now, as they're doing this, in the midst of the crowd... Jesus is able to identify. He always does this, right? In the midst of a crowd, he identifies a person. Because a crowd is, are, they're all individuals to Jesus. They're not just a group of people. And he identifies this one lady, and he calls his disciples' attention to her. There is this widow, and she puts two small copper coins, which would have been very hard to see because those coins were only four tenths of an inch. Across. I mean, just tiny little coins, two of them. She puts two of those into the treasury. These two were the two smallest coins available at the time. Now Jesus and his, calls his disciples and tells them, Truly I tell you, this poor woman has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury. For all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now Jesus cares, apparently, more about her attitude and the heart behind it than the value of what she's given, because he says she's given more than all those wealthy people had put in. The wealth... The wealthy folks might have been putting in jugs of money into the boxes. But for them, it was just spare change. It was just spare change. But this woman gave it all. 
Now, this is another example in Jesus' long tradition of flipping things on their heads. Right? The, the first, last, the rich, poor. Right? The powerful will be weak. The weak will be powerful. The meek will inherit the earth. He does this over and over and over again to, to disrupt our human impulse to quantify. He turns it on its head. And says, in God's economy, those two little copper coins, which were worth almost nothing, are worth more than vast sums of money. And they're worth more because of the heart behind it. Now, humans, we value things based on empirical value, right? Five items are more than four. A hundred dollars is worth more than one dollar. Does anyone disagree with this? No, that's how it works in our world, right? Like all those said examples before, you can't tell your real estate agent or the person you're buying the home from, well, I know this house is $200,000. I have $10, but there's a lot of heart behind it. Right? I really like this house. You know, no, it doesn't work in this world, does it? And yet Jesus says that those two widows' mites are worth more than all that other money. How is that? How is that true? God seems to view the world in a vastly different way than we do. And as Christians, we are challenged to view the world like him. How can we do that? Our God, he seems to care more about what is behind the gift than what is given in the gift. The Lord loves the attitude of the widow because she gives out of what appears to be a deep love for and trust in God. The rich, we don't know why they're giving, but it might have been out of obligation because they had to, out of a feeling of necessity that, yes, this is what I have to do. They could have been giving out of a feeling like these um, scribes who want to do things for the show of it. Perhaps those boxes were called trumpet boxes because someone blew a trumpet when you put in your gift, calling attention to it. Some people have argued that, actually. Right? We don't know their motivation. We don't even know the widow's motivation. But we know that in Jesus' economy, what she gave was worth more than what anyone else did. These linked accounts of the scribes and the widow... They tell us something about people and about God. Remember the scribes, they were always clamoring for more attention, more power, more money, more status. The widow, she's quietly giving away all that she has so that she can receive from the Lord. Remember, I removed some items from here earlier. And what was the purpose of removing the items? Space, to create space, to create room, to create opportunity. This widow was removing those items, giving them to God, perhaps to create room. Room for God to move. Room for God to work in her heart. Room for God to provide. Because those two small copper coins, they'd go away soon anyway, wouldn't they? They'd be gone by that next morning. But God, 
He was going to be there forever. As we think about this, as we think about those items in our life, those things in our life, those priorities in our lives, do we have room? Do we have room in our life for God? And where do our priorities lie? Where is our heart? Are we like the widow? Or are we like the scribes? May the Lord reveal that to us today. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the gift and blessing of your love and your mercy for your challenge. Lord God, it is hard to see our own hearts. It is hard to see what motivates us. And oftentimes, it seems that when we do get a glimpse of it, it is definitely a mixed set of emotions and desires that lead us. Lord, we turn to you. We turn to you, the one who knows us better than we know ourselves, better than anyone knows us. And we ask, Lord God, we ask that you would reveal our hearts to us. Show us, Lord God, the good and the bad. Show us ways that we have true faith coming out of our hearts, Lord, and ways that we are completely faithless. Lord, reveal this to us so that we might turn to you, so that we we might seek after you, seek hope and mercy and grace and forgiveness in you. And Lord God, help us. Help us to be freed from from this worldview which tells us that that more is more, more things is better. And Lord, help us to create space, to create space for you. Lord, I fear that I'm like the scribes. I fear that my life is all quantified and sought and is uh, filled with the clamoring for more. Help me, Lord. Help us, Lord, to be like the widow willing to give everything away and to trust in you. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.